Hello and welcome to the Home Streets Home podcast. If all goes to plan over the next few weeks and episodes, I'll be chatting with those in society that are often ignored and hearing their inspirational stories, as well as the determined activists that work day and night to help them. On this episode, I speak with my good friend Moses Seatler, who is the fundraising and communications officer at the Refugee Support Network. We talk about an inspirational man called Hamid, housing for refugees in the midst of a global pandemic, and the complex nature of settling in the UK. Hello, sir. Hello, Moses. I'm, I'm gutted. I'm absolutely gutted about that. Don't be silly. Back stronger. I'm not sure why that happened, but we'll just hope it doesn't happen again anyway. Either way, uh, my friend told me that actually knows what he's doing when it comes to podcasting, that we should both clap at the same time so that when I bring both the audios together from my side and your side, it's easier to link up anyway. So are you okay to clap on like three, two, one, and then we clap? Yeah. Cool. All right. Three, two, one. Did you clap? Yeah, we can try again, though. <laughs> okay, three, two, one. You didn't clap that time. Okay, maybe it's just the claps don't come up then, because I'm definitely clapping my side, as long as you're definitely clapping your side. <laughs> Some claps are better than other claps. Well, Moses, welcome back to Home Street Home. To those that don't know, which is which is everyone in the world apart from me and you, um, we had actually been talking for some time, but my laptop decided to crash. So we're back. So I guess we'll have to go back to the start. But yeah, Moses, thank you very much for coming on Home Street Home um, today. How are you doing? I'm really good, mate. Thanks for having me on and thanks for setting this up. No worries at all. Do we want to start by just kind of hearing a bit about you? I kind of have done a little bit of an intro um, before this bit, but it would sound a lot better coming from you. I'm not going to bore you. My name is Moses. I work for an organisation called Refugee Support Network, who are a refugee education charity based in Harlesden, uh, which is a little part of northwest London. And I also do some work for a human rights advocacy organisation called Rene Kassan, um, so I teach kids about why human rights are important, why we should be nice to refugees and asylum seekers. I love that you started that by saying you're not going to bore us. And I actually have the privilege of knowing that you don't because we basically recorded most of this podcast and then my fruit-based device failed me. Um, but anyway, <laughs> the idea behind Home Street Home was to hear from parts of society that we rarely hear about. Uh, so I'm very excited to hear your views on how we treat and think about refugees as well as what we can do to make the situation better. I, I should say, with this being in COVID-19 times, I'm currently in my room with the mic taped to uh, an easel with football tape. I don't I don't know why we have an easel. Um, I really don't know why we have an easel in our house, but there you go. Um, so I'm hoping the sound quality stays consistent um, and the tape holds. But regardless, should we start with the RSN and what you and your team do for refugees? Sure. So nine years ago, a couple of inspirational women realised that there wasn't much support in the local area for the growing refugee and asylum seeker population. So they set up a little uh, educational mentoring programme where they were basically themselves would try and help refugees who were in school with their homework and soon with their language um, uh, 
English makes a big difference in schools, and you can, as you can imagine. Um, nine years later, they have grown to be the largest refugee education charity in the UK. Um, they also do stuff outside of education with, you know, well-being support and ad hoc support of of people whose cases they take on. Um, but the gist is that they believe in these young people's journeys, and I think that education is at the uh, at the heart of what what they will need to to progress, to integrate, and to live happy lives after what they've gone through. I'm guessing it differs case to case with the young people's journeys. Can you explain a bit more about these differences and what sort of situations they're fleeing from? Sure. So RSN, Refugee Support Network, don't uh, discriminate on the basis of whether you're a refugee or whether you're an asylum seeker. In other words, whether you've been recognised as having been persecuted for one of the reasons outlined in the Refugee Convention or whether you're a victim of war and therefore falling outside of the convention. The, uh, the gist really is, is, is displacement. Someone has been forced to flee or they've had to move for whatever reason. Now they are uh, thrown into what is a very complex uh, asylum and migration system. Um, and, you know, some would argue purposefully complex. And so we're there to kind of uh, support them, support their families. Um, a lot of them who we work with are uh, unfortunately unaccompanied. Um, so... Yeah, there are a lot of acute needs that we deal with. You asked me about the people that I work with. Other than being incredibly inspirational, hardworking, they try and help a young person throughout their educational journey. So if you're arriving in primary school, you're going to need help with, with your English language. Um, then, you know, as you grow older, it might be appropriate to have a mentor. We have a, a big mentoring scheme. And then when you leave school, we, we try and get refugees and asylum seekers to university which is particularly difficult it's difficult enough to get to university um, to navigate that incredibly annoying UCAS form so you can imagine what it's like if you're doing it in a, a second or third language so yeah our services are trying to help a young person across that journey um, and that's why our logo is this kind of peculiar curve upwards I've never properly examined the logo I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it now it's a little bit like the whole hidden arrow in the FedEx sign illusion. To anyone listening, give that a Google or Bing or Safari, that will blow your mind. <laughs> um, but I'll make sure links are attached to wherever this podcast ends up so listeners can navigate themselves towards the logo and more importantly uh, to the RSN site. I only noticed it the other day. It was uh, mind-blowing. I, I was actually going through the website, I think kind of as um, uh, j just to kind of do do some research on the on what you guys do. And there's lots of success stories. Are there any kind of in particular or a particular one that shines to you of someone that you've worked with? Yeah, 100 percent, man. My boy, Hamid. I'm sure he won't mind me uh, me mentioning him. He's on the website and there's a good reason for it. Um you know, sometimes I'm a bit skeptical about these success stories, and I feel like, you know, as someone in in uh, who does the comms for a refugee charity, you know, we should be careful of suggesting that you know everything's a success story because the reality is, for some, for many, it's a really challenging and difficult time. Um, but my friend Hamid, who lives not too far away from me, has um, he he's got a great video telling his story on 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 our YouTube channel. But the gist of it is that he's he's come here. He started, he was in a very, very difficult position on his own and um, he managed to go to university. Um, and the reason that I like the story is because he is committed to being a mechanical engineer. 
um, and he's got a particular interest in flying. And I just think that when someone has served such a difficult deck of hands, to to stay with that um, motivation and that uh, and that hope, you know, that's what it's all about. And uh, sometimes, you know, I, I get really negative. Oh, things are going terribly, and it's all going wrong. And, and he's the one there, even after everything that he's gone through, playing away from home, as it were. He's um, he's providing the positivity. So yeah. One day I'd love to introduce you to him. He's a, he's a top geezer. I'd, I'd love to meet Hamid. And I know we've spoken off air about sorting a time where we can potentially all chat together. Uh, so hopefully that appears in a future episode. But but you mentioned his interest in mechanical engineering and flying. How close is he to realising those aspirations right now? Yeah, so the story isn't complete. Hamid is uh, still... He does still have aspirations to be a pilot, which he's not giving up on, but he has some familial obligations. He's got a, a young son and a wife. Um, so, yeah, they, he's, he works in a tyre shop at the moment, um, and he also does a bit of uh, takeaway delivery. Um, that's not his dream, um, and he's got very high aspirations, and I believe in him, and I think he believes in himself. It's just, especially during this period, it's, uh, it's not so easy. I wish the story ended a bit better than that, um, but but that's actually the truth. Um, one of the great things about Hamid, despite his difficulty trying to find regular employment, is that he's quite keen to spread the message. He realizes that because of his good English, uh, he's able to pass on the message and to inspire change, which I think is really um, inspiring thing to do. Often, you know, it's it seems that you've gone on this perilous journey all you want is a bit of peace and quiet but he's quite committed to to bringing about real change so hats off to the geezer i've known you for many years moses i'm not sure i've ever heard you say geezer let alone uh, geezer twice in a few minutes um i'm definitely going to mention <laughs> that to hamid when i speak with him although i'm worried he's going to start calling people geezer what if he addresses me as geezer <laughs> i'll probably i'll probably just say it back um but i digress with people like hamid does RSN promote a cyclical system whereby he is still heavily involved and then serves as an example and a mentor to refugees that have just come to the UK that a better life is attainable? 100%, man, 100%. We're always looking for people involved in RSN from refugee backgrounds. Um, I think, you know, as an organisation, our direction is uh, very much determined by the young people that we work with. I'm lucky enough to be involved in the Youth Advisory Board, a group of people who uh, inform the direction of RSN uh, from refugee backgrounds. So the people we've worked with, this is actually where I met Hamid, uh, sit down in a room and we discuss the upcoming decisions and and what uh, might be useful for uh, a young person to receive or or, or how we can improve our services. So yeah, we're really keen to be refugee-led and we'll be are searching for applicants for our uh, jobs and our vacancies, particularly from people from refugee backgrounds. So with Hamid, what would his first few days and first few weeks have looked like when he came to the UK? Assuming that you're not detained, you are placed in an initial accommodation centre, which is either a massive hostel in Croydon or some form of temporary accommodation, normally in the London area. Um, That might be a bed and breakfast, uh, a hostel um, and you're kept there for a few weeks and then at that point where it's supposed to be after three weeks or there are often delays um 
you're, you're dispersed. You're sent to dispersal accommodation, which can be all across the country and can be pretty challenging if you've made friends with all the Afghani blokes in Northwest London. And, you know, maybe you've got a relative here. And then before you know it, you're dispersed. You're moved to uh, another part of the country and you have no choice in where you're sent, which is seems to me like another form of displacement. Someone's just traveled across the world. They begin to put their roots down, uh, find out how things work, and they're sent off somewhere else. These dispersal accommodation spaces are run by contractors hired by the home office. Um, they're supposed to be sufficient. They're supposed to be private. They're supposed to be safe. Um, not sure whether that's the case all the time. A lot of the uh, difficulties we deal with are, are related to accommodation. Um, and especially in this peculiar viral time, uh, you know, asylum accommodation is often quite cramped or you're forced to share a room with someone else, which obviously would make social distancing particularly difficult at this time. I was going to ask about um, uh, COVID-19. Uh, in case this is being listened to by my children in 20 years time, viral uh, is in reference to COVID-19, uh, not not this podcast going mainstream. <laughs> the, other, the other thing, Ash, before you go on, is that an, a really important thing about uh, accommodation with refugees and asylum seekers is that asylum seekers are housed in these two types of accommodation, but this is while your asylum application is going on. Once that asylum process which determines whether you are a refugee or not, or whether you're entitled to international humanitarian protection or not. Um, that, while that process is over, you're asked to leave that accommodation. You've got 28 days to leave. And, you know, it's liberating in some sense, I suspect, because you're given this whole new set of rights in accordance with the 1951 Refugee Convention. But you're also, you know, you're stuck in Glasgow, for example. You've got to find somewhere to live in 28 days, which, you know... Not so easy if you've only arrived three months ago from Nigeria or Albania or something. Moses, not that we have anything um, against Glasgow, but <laughs> with, without organisations like yours, after that 28 days, what what does a, a refugee do? Where, where are they looking for kind of food, housing, employment? Where do they go next if they're not lucky enough to kind of get the support of the Refugee Support Network? Sure. So a lot depends on your status. Uh, if you're granted refugee status, you can receive welfare benefits, you can apply for accommodation, you can work. Uh, if you're unsuccessful uh, and you're not granted refugee status or right to remain, then the process of uh, your removal from the country begins to take place. That can be quite challenging. Uh, immigration detention centres are, are not the place you want to be. Um, the other thing is, Individuals fall through the cracks. It's a very bureaucratic process, um, not so easy in a uh, in a second or third or fourth language. Um, yeah, there is something called Section 95 support. I warned that it was slightly complex. And this is for destitute asylum seekers. Um, but there is a process through which uh, one is determined whether they can uh, receive this support explicitly for um, destitution cases. Um, the reality is that NGOs and charities are trying to fill the gap, which some would argue the Home Office and the government have purposefully created. By um, purposefully created, I know earlier you mentioned the process as being purposefully complex. Are you implying that immigration laws and the hoops needed to jump through to gain settled status in the UK are just becoming 
more difficult and confusing for refugees that are fleeing persecution and when they actually finally get to the UK they face a new type of uh, oppression? Sure well I mean I think an important thing to say is that the government is bound by international law that is to say if a individual is uh, judged in court to qualify as a refugee in accordance with the definition then they are granted refugee status. So in that sense there's nothing much the government can do. Um, You're either a refugee or you're not. Um, However, it's my belief that the government see the international protection of refugees as more of a burden than a responsibility. And uh, I'm sure the the hostile environment is no news to you. Um, And so, yeah, I think, I personally think the Home Office do uh, the least that they can. They fulfill their obligations, not all the time, but they, they, they say that they do. Uh, they're not particularly clear in their communication. Um, it's complicated and people's cases will differ depending on their caseworker and where they are and where they've come from. And so, yeah, it is difficult. And I think the government should be doing a lot more. And I yearn for the day when the government realised that actually we have an opportunity in this country to take the lead, to um, lead by example and to provide protection um, as we have done so over the course of the past 100 years at different points. We have, and, and it's a shame that while we seem to progress in so many areas in terms of economy or, say, technology, one where we still can't seem to find sort of across-the-board success is fostering a collective psychology around the UK of welcoming those who, in a way, are families and uh, individuals that are making journeys that our own families will have taken however many years ago. Um, it's tough that we still can't seem to break down that barrier of the other, um, as if there's some sort of fundamental difference between us. Um, but Moses, bringing it back to RSN and the projects you work on, how do you get funding? As I can imagine, there's no government help. And with COVID-19, all charities must be struggling. So yeah, how have you been raising money at the moment? Well, I think the case with lots of refugee charities, including uh Refugee Support Network is that a lot of the funding comes from trusts and foundations. Uh, my job is to, uh, as we would say, diversify the income stream, which obviously just means more money, more people. Um, and yeah, you know, there's a there's a there's a really inspirational guy called called Alf Dubs who uh, was a refugee who arrived on the Kinder Transport about eighty years ago, and now he's a campaigner for refugee rights as well as a Labour peer. And he stood up about two years ago uh, at Hyde Park Corner and he said very powerfully, I know that the country is on our side and that we're going to win the argument and that uh, the country supports refugees and asylum seekers. And I was so inspired, I looked at him in awe. I thought, wow. And he was responsible for a, a scheme to bring unaccompanied asylum seekers into the UK. And actually... In my time in uh, fundraising and uh, really thinking about the situation and the electoral context, I actually think he might have been slightly too hopeful. And actually, uh, we do need some more help. We do need to win the argument. We do need to rid the country of what is a pernicious idea that refugees come and they take away or they they bring disease. The reality is that, from my perspective at least, these individuals have gone through very, very difficult situation and that we can learn from them and that we should be proud of our capacity to welcome them. 
that's such a lovely way of putting it um, that we should be proud of our capacity to welcome them. I think, and may, maybe it's only been made more apparent since the 2016 referendum, because I know Brexit, immigration and racism sort of became synonymous with each other. And I know it is more nuanced than that, but have the people you work with felt the impact of that growing resentment and fear that Brexit uh, just happened to kind of shine a light upon? Um, that's a good question. To be honest, I think that the uh, resistance towards helping refugees and asylum seekers and migrants has kind of been going for, for since before Brexit was uh, big in the news. Um, my colleagues are quite conscious of the challenges that refugees face, particularly related to their race. Some receive racism on the streets, some don't. Um, what tends to happen in societies, I, I suspect, is that when you start to treat your own citizens uh, in an unfair way, thinking of the Windrush scandal, that kind of feeds into the way that you treat non-citizens and vice versa. Um, you know, I I speak from my personal experiences, not not I'm a, not as a representative of either of my employees when I say that I think Britain does have an issue with race and uh, there is something about uh, Brexit which has kind of legitimized a an ethnic nationalism, um, which I thought we'd kind of uh, rid ourselves of one once we kind of kicked hooliganism out of football. Um, but it, it's, it's still there. Um, as I say, these aren't my, the views of my employers. Um, but and, and you know, what? another thing which I would really try to think about and, and, and maybe ask Ali or Hamid is, how do they feel about the fact that the, the Home Secretary, the head of the Home Office, Preeti Patel, is enacting particularly discriminatory policies against refugees and asylum seekers. She's the daughter of an immigrant. How does that kind of compute? With some way off, with some way off the point at which uh, we can all love each other and be friendly with one another. But at the same time, actually, like <laughs> think about uh, some countries in the Middle East. I'm thinking of Qatar in particular. Um, Although there are, that's not the only country in the Middle East to treat immigrants very, very badly. It's almost slave labor, um, where your passport is um, confiscated on arrival. So, you know, we're not the worst of the bunch, but yeah, there is a real hesitancy towards refugees and asylum seekers and immigrants generally. And I think that one of the reasons that's the case is because Tory governments have perceived uh, nationalist sentiment um, extending to hostility towards refugees, asylum seekers and immigrants as electorally beneficial. Well, it's not easy to win the argument when powerful individuals uh, spout rubbish. Um, I was thinking of, a, of an eloquent way to put it, but for David Cameron to call refugees a swarm suggests they're some sort of insect. You know, that was in 2015. It's now 2020, and I'm, I'm still kind of upset about it. The other thing is that you know, even the way that our press talk about refugees and asylum seekers is interesting. You know, it's always a, a flood of refugees, um, which is uh, which, which is interesting because uh, you know when asylum seekers and refugees come here, uh, they put down roots which is, you know, that offends that metaphor of fluidity. And actually, once someone is here, they, they, they integrate, they learn 
and to then kind of throw them out and say no we don't want you is, is you know not so easy it's a process i think that powerful individuals politicians uh, uh, news conglomerates have an obligation to assess the arguments fairly i don't think it's wrong to chat about immigration but um i think that the debate is it's been a bit um it hasn't been particularly fair to these human beings who are fleeing persecution or more it's a shame it was it's an embarrassment that that so many political leaders in the uk have fallen prey to anti-immigrant rhetoric as you say cameron uh, Preeti patel with her immigration bill and then of course dangerous nigel farage smugly uh, standing in front of the uh, infamous breaking point poster around the time of um, Brexit uh, and they've all indulged in anti-immigrant sentiment as it seems people always need a scapegoat to look towards and blame and it won't, won't surprise me at all if on future episodes their names come up again in um, a similar kind of negative manner. I wanted uh, as a more positive note I wanted on the last bit of this podcast um, especially on episodes when speaking to activists and thinkers like you Moses um, who are working to help people who have been displaced either by a foreign regime or by our government or by any other circumstances and, and don't receive a warm welcome or thorough and planned support when they get to the UK, um, what we might be able to do to help in an impactful way? Sure. Um, I think to be effective, a response needs to be holistic. And that means uh, what you do needs to be responsive to what an asylum seeker actually needs. One of the really great things about this coronavirus situation is that these groups have cropped up on Facebook where people uh, say what they need and you can respond directly to them. Uh, I saw the other day someone was looking for a fridge and I thought, you know, an asylum seeker from Nigeria looking for a fridge. And I thought, you know, you would never, you'd never think that that would be the case, but ad hoc help is really important. Um, there are loads of things you can do, man. Like, Accommodation we've discussed can be very precarious. There's a great charity called Refugees at Home um, who do what other charities do as well, which is provide housing for refugees. Um, so, you know, if you know someone or if you yourself have a spare room, that can make a massive difference. Um, at this time or at any time, donating your old technology. And yeah, I'm going to say it. It's not cool or sexy to, to promote fundraising, but the reality is that NGOs and charities do provide effective services and they do need to be funded. Um, so, you know, it might not be so fun. And I would love to say, oh, why don't you write a, a letter of solidarity to a young refugee? Like, it's a great idea, beautiful. But like, sending over 50 quid would be a lot more effective and would go a lot further. Say, say it was 50 quid. For the Refugee Support Network, where does that go directly? Who does that help? Uh, how does that help them? Sure. So the your money goes to... Uh, funding the services, which are mainly staff-led. Um, you know, the mentoring program has about 350 matched mentors and mentees, which takes quite a lot of organization. Another example, you know, we provide round-the-clock well-being support. So for young people who are struggling with their mental health um, and who are, you know, on the verge of, of, of hurting themselves or whatnot, when they call at 3 a.m. in the morning, we need someone to pick up and we need someone to go around to their accommodation if needs be. And, you know, those people who are awake at that time need to be paid. Um, so our model is uh, not so easy to fundraise for because I'd love to say to you that, you know, give £20 and you'll be able to, you know, help a refugee in this way. 
the way that it works isn't slightly like that, but you know, I could sell it to you that way and say, you know, for a young person to come to a mentoring meeting, they need to get there somehow. They need they need their accommodation help. So yeah, it's mainly staff. The other thing to say is that RSN, coupled with another couple of charities and the church, have just purchased a really grand old bank on Harleston High Street with the uh, aspiration of renovating it into a really beautiful refugee education centre, kind of educational home for young people where they can provide their services but also host uh, ESOL lessons or um, host social events. Um, And unfortunately that building isn't going to renovate itself. So yeah, that's another way that you can help. Well, thank you, Moses. Uh, You're the first guest on Home Streets Home. Uh, By far the best first guest uh, I could hope for. You speak so fluently and engagingly on the topic, uh, and I look forward to having you back when the bank on Halston High Street has been fully renovated. Uh, But yeah, thanks again, Moses. Uh, Massively, massively appreciate uh, you coming on and speaking with me today. Mate, thank you. Thank you. There's there's a tendency in our culture to just look at the people in the centre of society and laud their successes. But um, I'm really grateful for you and your project for looking to the fringes and to uh, hopefully giving them a voice. Well, hopefully we can get this listened to by at least kind of six or seven people. (laughs) (laughs) Does that include or exclude me and you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm I'm including including us doing that. Cheers, mate. Really appreciate it. Cheers, man. Uh, See you on the other side of the lockdown.